Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the highwaymen artists have become an important part of Florida history and culture. The way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. Remembering the company town of Perry, Florida, and a Miami historian writes about the Bay of Pigs from a Cuban perspective. They were all extremely idealistic. I think everybody was very intense on freeing, on freeing Cuba. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Highwaymen artists are a group of African-American painters who specialize in beautiful Florida landscapes. These artists were inspired by white artist Beanie Bacchus of Fort Pierce, but developed their own unique style of painting very quickly in large quantities using inexpensive materials. With the exception of highwayman Alfred Hare, who studied with Bacchus, the highwayman artists were mostly self-taught. The original group of highwayman artists emerged in the mid-1950s in the Fort Pierce area. Their work was not sold in galleries, but from cars driven from one end of Florida to the other. Al Black is one of the original highwayman artists, but that's not how he started with the group. Yes, sir. I was the salesman for the whole group. I uh, would load all the paintings up in the car and take off in the mornings. And if they give me 50 paintings, I would sell 50 paintings. Al Black explains the secret of his success as he took the highwayman paintings from Fort Pierce down to the Keys and up to Alabama and many places in between. Well, I was always a good talker, and I would uh, go around and I would go to the real estate offices, doctor's offices and uh, attorneys and uh, motels and different offices and I would go in and say, my name is Al Black, say I'm uh, representing Ahare, uh, Newton, uh, whoever I was selling for at that time. And I said, I would like to know would you all be interested in some paintings if it wouldn't take up too much of you all's time. And most of the time, uh, they would let me come in and sell some. While Black was transporting highwayman paintings around the state to sell, they would sometimes get damaged. Often he would load the paintings into his car while they were still wet. That was how Al Black started painting. I would fix the paintings uh, when I mess them up on the road because we had to sell them uh, 
real fast because in that time we were selling them real low and we had to keep on painting. And while they would be painting, I would be out on the road. And I learned how to paint by fixing the, all the different artists' paintings when I mess one up. After years of successfully selling the work of other highwaymen artists, Al Black decided he could create Florida landscapes himself. After I fixed them for so many years, I was a salesman back in the 60s up until the 70s. And after I fix so many, I could start paying myself. Al Black's story is unique among the more than two dozen highwaymen artists. He could not sell his work for more than a decade. Well, I was in uh, the prison system for 12 years, but I still painted. They allowed me to paint right there in prison. And ain't too many people that were, was able to paint in prison. But by me being one of the highwaymen, and I was famous and everything. They went on and let me paint it. I sold most of them already, but everything I paint it sells anyway. So I don't hardly have any more of those prisoner paintings, but the ones was uh, signed with a block A. Uh, those paintings sell for more because they was, it won't be any more of that because they all prisoner paintings. The highwaymen artists are known for their idyllic depictions of the natural Florida prior to development and urban sprawl. Their paintings focus on marshlands, river scenes, beaches, sunrises and sunsets, palm trees, brightly colored poinciana trees, Spanish moss hanging from cypress trees, and Florida's indigenous wildlife. Al Black says that their paintings preserve Florida history. That's right, because of you, the, the way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. The original group of highwaymen artists followed the examples of Alfred Hare, who studied with Beanie Backus, and Harold Newton. Marianne Carroll is a pastor from Fort Pierce and an original highwayman artist. Her mentor was Harold Newton. I saw his car with a fiery flame painted on the side, and it, I've always been intrigued by things that was different, and that was different. And so one day I saw him sitting on 20, about 20th Street talking to somebody, and I saw it, and I stopped him and asked him questions about the car, and he let me know he painted it. So then it was a painting laying in the back seat, and I th always thought this stuff was done with a camera. I didn't ever think it would be done by people. Well, see, when I was small, I'd look at the catalogs and stuff, and I guess that's why I thought that way. I used to like look at Norman Rockwell's work, but it never dawned on me that it could be done that way. When I saw Harold, then he told me he did it. I saw him um, painting on a tree, and I stopped, drove in the yard, and I stopped, and he, uh, I didn't enter interrupt him. I just, he knew me from seeing me over there on 20th Street. So what, he didn't have to ask me who I was, what I was looking for. I just uh, watched him paint. So when he got through, I asked him, would he show me, teach me? So and he said, yeah. So I went over there one day and he tacked me up an 18 by 24 board. And it was a river scene. And I'll never forget, he co-phased two palms on it because I didn't know how to paint no trees. He mixed the colors for me and that's how I went. It was more or less like pastel colors. And so I just went on wild myself painting what I, colors I like. I couldn't ever get them all like I wanted them a lot of time, but other people seemed to like them, so I didn't have a problem with that, you know. So but he was, uh, he inspired me through the works that he'd done. And he's the first one that I have known that was an actual highwayman 
But we never looked at it like that, but we accepted the name because it's the way you made your living. They really didn't feel like we was gallery material, so we had to do what we had to do. I guess you could call it a, a, a mobile gallery. <laughs> and so this is the way it had started, and it went on from there to where it is now. Marianne Carroll is the only female highwayman artist. She says that the artists never thought of themselves as any kind of organized group. The name Highwayman was assigned to the painters by art dealer Jim Fitch in 1995 in an article he wrote for the magazine Antiques and Art Around Florida. We weren't really a group, per se. We were all independent bodies with our own self, uh, self and same desires and uh, tasks. They're like a bunch of people in Orange Grove picking fruit, but everybody picking his own fruit. You know, you need to go and look to get none of mine that I pick, pick your own fruit. So we basically was associated by our, um, by our gift. And they really, I didn't really have a problem with the guys. They weren't, they didn't go out the way to let me know I was, they was going to help me or nothing like that. So I just looked at it as a woman surviving in a man's world and I knew I had do what I had to do because I had responsibility down the line. I had responsibility to seven children, raise single parent. And this is why I can't see people not falling out because they have to raise one or two kids. And I mean, it's just, I did it. And it was not, I know it was the grace of God, but I thank God because Jim Crow days and all that stuff. But I notice in life that there are people that take you for who you are and for not what somebody else wants you to be. And there were many whites that was there for us. And there were many that looked like they wanted to say, well, get out of here. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just a thing where it worked out fine in our behalf and there were many nice people as well as unnice. And that go on every, every side of the world, every side of the race, creed and color. We all have some hangups and problems. And, uh, but me, I, they used to tell me that, uh, so how do you be feel like called a highway woman, highwayman? I said, it doesn't really bother me, you know, because when I, a little common judgment, when I looked, you know, when Adam and Eve, Eve came from man's side, and so she was called woman. And I noticed on man and men, the last three letters spells the same. So therefore it doesn't bother me, and it didn't bother me really. But I never thought of nothing like that as me being a woman, they being a man. I just thought of us as being artists to, to make a living for ourselves. In addition to being a painter, Marianne Carroll expresses herself in other creative ways as a poet and musician. It's all just a part of me. Uh, like you might get tired of wearing black shoes and put on some brown ones or something like that. I just look at it as a mind soother. And I uh, travel five states singing gospel made two records and have some now sitting back been had them for about 10 years i want to put them out on a cd now and i pastor the church small congregation of people uh and i thank god that we lost one here a few weeks ago that was very dedicated and i um i even painted houses and did a little plumbing i mean all this i raised seven kids as i said single parent and i always felt that an honest dollar was more than any dollar in the world in my hands, an honest dollar. Not one that I got out and cheated somebody, uh, 
stole or something like that, uh, body bargaining. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just grateful to God that he had those gifts for me. Like the other highwayman artists, Mary Ann Carroll is preserving a part of Florida that is quickly disappearing to development and urban sprawl. You look back, even now, it's still a little bit, but from when I was coming up, the places that we was raised, they're not there now. And the schools that we used to attend, basically almost gone. And uh, it's just the scenery that used to be there is not there now. And we either have to memorize it from the spot it was in, or some of it is still there. We can, you know, like Savannah's, they're still there. They haven't been bothered too much. And uh, the inlet, St. Louis Inlet, is still there. It haven't really been bothered, the water site. But I guess if it hadn't been for water management, it would have been tampered with also. And a lot of the backwoods, country scenes and things are gone. They're not there now. And it have taken a whole lot of nature from from our view. Roy McClendon is also one of the handful of highwaymen artists who originated the movement in the Fort Pierce area in the mid-1950s. Soon after Jim Fitch coined the name Highwaymen Artists, books soon followed. In 2001, Gary Monroe wrote the book The Highwaymen, Florida's African-American Landscape Painters, and in 2005, Bob Beattie wrote Florida's Highwaymen, Legendary Landscapes. In 2004, 26 artists called the Highwaymen were inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. McClendon says he was surprised to discover how many Highwaymen artists there were. Well, Gary Monroe read this book, and you know, well, uh, Jim Fitch opened all the Seaburn, he named us the Highwaymen. So. And then even in the book about the Highwaymen, Gary Monroe, so. then we all was inducted into the Hall of Fame. See, what happened is... Um, a lot of a lot of people in the book I didn't even know, but, but they had the name in the book, so they put everybody in the book in the Hall of Fame. So that's what happened there, because a lot of my I, I never heard tell them tell them how women come out and then then some, then a lot of people want to get on the wagon because the price went up, you know. Oh yeah, because pieces like one of these stuff for thirty five dollars. I was for thirty-five and forty-five hundred for it, the same painting, you know, so now everybody want to be a <laughs> As McClendon points out, the average price for a highwayman painting in the 1950s and 60s was $35, and today it's not unusual for them to sell for $3,500. More importantly, the story of the highwayman artists is one of creative people making economic opportunities for themselves in a difficult era of racial segregation in Florida.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming special events, view historic photos, find great books about Florida history, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bone A mind that's weak and a back that's strong He loads 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store The song 16 Tons refers to workers in the industrial northeast owing their pay to stores operated by the companies that employed them. As Janie Gould reports, there were company stores in Florida in places like Perry. Most company towns were in the industrial north, in coal mining country, and near mammoth factories, such as the Homestead Steel Mill in Pennsylvania. During the Depression, though, a small town in North Florida had all the trappings of a company town, one large employer with workers who traded at the company store. Gloria Wood, now 86 and a resident of Vero Beach, lived in Perry until 1932. In the little town of Perry, it was Courthouse Square, and on one side there was the movie house, and then the bank, and then the post office, the essentials of life. Right. First thing I remember is seeing people lined up in front of the bank. I asked my parents, what was this for? And I don't know if they told me or if I came to the conclusion that it was to draw their money out of the bank. About how old were you at that time? Oh, I was a little tough. I was under eight. But the bank failed. It was a very tough time because I remember men, particularly single men, who would come to your back door and knock on the door and ask for food, and my mother always made a play. So this was in Perry. People were heading down Highway 27, maybe? Possibly. Or even going east over toward uh, Gainesville. Perry was an interesting place. It was a one-industry town, a lumbering center. They had built houses and a commissary so that the people who didn't have cars could just walk a little way and buy their food and rugs, whatever, pillows. They paid their employees in script. So if somebody wanted something in town and they came to my father's store to buy a stove or something, they would want to pay in script. All of a sudden, he has a handful of script that is not the currency of the United States. This was very difficult to do business that way, so finally they moved. Was that the St. Joe Paper Company? I have no idea. I really don't know. Did they pay on the script, the company, whatever it was? Yes, the script was good with them, but you had to trade at the company store. To use it, we went out to get haircuts. We would um, buy groceries for the week there. It was more like the box stores that we have today than anything else. The big box stores. The big box stores. It was a forerunner. So Perry was a company town in those days. It was. You kind of associate those, at least I do, with Pullman and Carnegie up north, in the industrial north. Slightly smaller scale. (laughs) Much smaller scale. (laughs) So what kind of store did your father have? Furniture store, but he sold a little bit of hardware. One had to do that in small towns. In 1932, the family moved south to Winter Haven, where Gloria's father opened another store. He couldn't get the electricity turned on, 
He was only open one night a week. That was Saturday when everybody came to town. They got their provisions for the week. He used what was called an Aladdin lamp. I suppose it was just a particular design for an oil lamp that really brightened the store. This went on for quite a few months, and then, of course, he got the electricity on. You mean that was the one day that he stayed open at night? Otherwise, he was open six days a week. What do you remember about Florida in those days, in the, in the 30s? Your father always had a business, so you weren't yes. suffering. No, however, we didn't have a lot of extra money like people took, take a vacation every year now. We didn't. Most people were hurting, so you didn't think anything about it. But kids don't think anything about that anyway. As long as they have a few toys, that's all they're interested in. After World War II, Gloria Wood became a flight attendant for Eastern Airlines. She moved to New York, where she met her husband, Wilf Wood. They were married in 1946 and lived in New York and Connecticut until retiring to Vero Beach in 1986. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. This is Florida Frontiers. Historians have long argued the role of the United States in the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion of the early 1960s. Bill Dudley speaks with the author of a book telling the stories of the Cubans themselves, those who fought and lost in the air and on the ground. They were all extremely idealistic. I think everybody was very intense on freeing freeing Cuba and doing whatever it took to do it. Miami businessman Rafael Montalvo. In 1961, as an 18-year-old Cuban student at Georgia Tech, he made the decision to sign up for training at a remote camp in Guatemala, together with a diverse group of fellow recruits. Mostly young people, although there were people of all ages and all mixes. There were poor, poor people, rich people. It was, it was a, a very representative of the Cuban people. They would have fought one way or another, and joining the brigade and the invasion was the best available option, which is why they joined. The son of Cuban exiles, historian Victor Trier was born in Miami. His new book, Bay of Pigs, an oral history of Brigade 2506, may be the first to tell the story from the point of view of the fighters themselves. I won't say all of them, but, but many of the prominent sources almost treat the brigade and the men who fought as a secondary issue, as just sort of these nameless, faceless little Cubans making the story more about Alan Dulles and John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Bissell, and very little regard given to the Cubans who actually participated, who were fighting for the freedom of their country, their ideals, their motives, their backgrounds, who they were, why they did it. In other words, I wanted to take what made them great in my community and to share that with the American public. Trier interviewed some 46 people involved in the struggle, including soldiers, pilots, ex-CIA men, and widows of those who fought for what they considered the salvation of their homeland. I mean, there was just this sense of of crusade, this sense of doing good that that led these people to join up and fight. Many of them uh, had families, had young children. Some of them were teenagers. Some of them were, were 60 years old. These were people who were already out of Cuba uh, who could have simply just restarted their lives in the United States and, and, and didn't. Rafael Montalvo was an infantryman with the 2nd Battalion that landed on the beachhead of Playa Larga on the 15th of April, 1961. I landed in Playa Larga, and 
It was very intense fighting for two days and we stopped them completely. And yet on the second, on the morning of the second day, we were ordered to retreat and go to the main beachhead in, in Hiron, to the principal landing spot. And as we walked back from the front, uh, somebody started uh, singing the national anthem at that time. And uh, many of us started crying. We didn't think we had lost or we had, because we hadn't lost. With the support of the U.S., the attackers felt they couldn't lose, little realizing that decisions made at the highest levels of government were cutting back on support even as they landed on the island. Trier says the most devastating cutbacks were airstrikes, canceled by an anxious President Kennedy concerned over America's image in the eyes of the world. The whole plan centered around the beachhead being held and around Castro's Air Force being destroyed on the ground by the brigade's air force, by Cuban pilots flying U.S. B-26s, and those missions were canceled. And so that just sort of left them sitting ducks. We finally lost the radio, lost everything, and there were seven of us left, and and we came back to the beach, and it was mid-afternoon. And when we came to the beach, there was very few people there. Everybody had left. And I looked out to the sea, and the two destroyers turned their stern toward us and left. And I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. I felt not like a fool. I felt totally betrayed at that point in time. When the operation collapsed after three days of heavy fighting, only a handful of men were rescued. Nearly 1,200 took to the swamps and woods to evade capture. Once I realized we had lost, and I was trying just to get out of there and see how I could survive. As we were leaving, there was a group of peasants leaving with us. One of Castro's planes came in and strafed the group, mostly civilians. And I looked back to help uh, a peasant that was coming, and, and as I turned around and saw him, he was carrying a, a little kid in his hand, and, and it was his son. And his son had a huge hole in him and was dead. And at that time, at that point, I felt uh, so terrible. I said, well, look what I have done. I came, this happened. And we did not get our goal, and still look who paid for it. And to this date, I feel very bad about that because of that. After spending 20 months in Cuban prisons, what was left of Brigade 2506 returned to South Florida, where most still make their homes. In the community I grew up in, the Bay of Pigs was a very central event. It was probably the most important historical event for the community. And it wasn't just viewed as a historical event, but rather the determining moment of Cuba's fate. So it was a very, very emotionally charged issue. People who had served in the Bay of Pigs had and continue to have an enormous status in the community. I mean, imagine what World War II veterans were uh, to Americans in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and multiply that by a thousand. I mean, we look at this as a defeat. We lost friends, people lost children, they, they lost husbands, brothers. But those of us that survived gained tremendously from this. We really, when you look at it, we have come out victorious in this. We have raised our families in a free country, and we have given them the freedom that we wanted for all Cubans. Not a freedom that came easy, or not a freedom that was given, but a freedom that I think we earned. And that is a victory, and I am very proud of it. Bay of Pigs, an oral history of Brigade 2506, is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.